Today's reading is Isaiah chapter 29, starting at verse 1. Woe to you, woe Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel, she will mourn and lament, she will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground, your speech will mumble out of the dust, your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is in a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakens hungry still, as when a thirsty person dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless, be drunk but not from wine, stagger but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter was thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. And all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, says to the descendants of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy, 
They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's, let's pray that we'd be wise, become people whose wisdom is of value. Uh, great God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your timeless words in the scriptures. Thank you that even though we're talking about a political situation centuries and centuries ago, still, human hearts are the same. Our tendency to trust ourselves rather than your wisdom is the same. Help us to be truly wise and trust in your word, we pray. Amen. So uh, the, the passage this week particularly this little phrase that the wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. I found myself sort of daydreaming a little bit. And what is the difference between wisdom and shrewdness? There's some sense in which we use the words differently. So I um, looked up some dictionary definitions. They were of very limited help, really. Uh, although I did learn that a collective noun of apes is a shrewdness of apes. Did you know that? <laughs> Please don't say... You don't learn things here. Okay. A shrewdness of apes, uh, apparently. But a wisdom. Wisdom is the quality of having experience and good judgment. Shrewdness is the quality of sharp powers of judgment. Well, they're quite similar, aren't they? Uh, but then I did find one other little helpful definition of how we use it in English. The wise person always takes the right decision. The shrewd person thinks about himself first and takes a decision to benefit himself. Now, you could argue about that. I mean, the words get used interchangeably. I think you can only determine how they're used in context. But it's sensible, is it? A question to ask, do we do the right thing or the shrewd thing? And it comes up in day-to-day -day life. Uh, so just before Christmas, we had a boiler breakdown, and uh, the engineer, uh, plumber, came out and uh, said, oh, it's this bit. Um, to be honest, the, the manufacturer will pay for it under warranty. It'll be free as long as you've got a full service record. Oh, I haven't got a full service record. Um, he said, well, it's all right, just lie. Uh, and um, that's the shrewd thing to do. I mean, they won't check. Otherwise, if you don't do that, it'll cost you about a thousand pounds. So just, obviously, the shrewd thing to do is just tell them you've got to, well, I have a bit of a problem with that, actually. Um, well, you're an idiot. Okay. Um, or uh, recently chatting, catching up with someone, uh, a friend who's working overseas, and um, they were just making the observation they were classic sort of vintage of smuggling some Bibles uh, across a border, and a little nerve-wracking, well, it's fine. You know, you just bribe the officials. I said, oh, is that, is that, is that okay? Uh, it was just a shrewd thing to do. Oh, is that okay? Is, is it the right thing to do? Uh, or even more prosaically, just at work, you've, um, you've not done something. Have you done this? Well, and you think to yourself, well, I could admit I've not done it, and that'll create a lot of hassle. Or I could say, e yeah, I'll send it over to you which is sort of ambiguous. Um, and that's just the shrewd thing to do, isn't it? It's just the shrewd thing to do. It just saves me hassle. I mean, they're trite examples in one sense. 
But this whole section of Isaiah that we're in at the moment, chapters 28 to 39, asks the question, will you trust your wisdom, what seems shrewd to you, or will you do the right thing, which is trust God's wisdom? And in the short term, trusting your own wisdom, that might go okay, actually. But in the long term, always the right thing to do is to trust the wisdom of God. So that's the relentless question over these chapters, 28 to 39. Will you trust your wisdom or will you trust the Lord's? Do you know what the right answer is? Okay. It's trust the Lord's. All right, just just in case you're uncertain. Now, if you weren't here last week, let me remind you the the, the context, uh, the situation in uh, in Judah. Judah is a tiny kingdom. Alana, we got that map. Um, there it is. Uh, Alana, which I now uh, no no Judah. Uh, Alana, Alana is kindly helping. She's not a nation. Um, Judah, then the tiny country in red. No brown, brown. We said last week, didn't we? Brown. To try the. Uh, the, the threat is this Assyrian Empire. You can see 745, it starts off as the purple bit in the middle and then expands, 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 expands. And so it's an enormous threat to this tiny, tiny, piddly little nation of Judah. Uh, so people say, well, th- th- Isaiah is saying to the people of Judah, okay, yes, the vast war machine of Assyria is trundling towards you. But the Lord says... You just need to trust me. I'll keep you safe. And lots of people in the country of Judah are saying, you are joking, aren't you? There is a vast army trundling towards us. And Isaiah, you're saying, put your faith in an invisible God. You are joking. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. And so this section, particularly chapters 28 to 33, began it last week. Woe. Every chapter is introduced. Woe. Woe to you if you think you're going to trust your own wisdom. Woe to you. Particularly the temptation. We're so weak, we have to trust Egypt. That's the, that's the real temptation for them. Form an alliance with this other old nation of Egypt. Well, that turns out to be useless. We'll see. But woe to you if you trust Egypt rather than me. Woe to you. You had it last time. Chapter 28. Chapter 29 begins. Woe. Chapter 30. Woe. Alas. The so-called wisdom of trusting worldly plans rather than the Lord is, in the technical theological term, nuts. It's nuts to trust the wisdom of this world when it contradicts the wisdom of what God says in the Scriptures. Just don't do it. It never goes well. So we'll work through the passage like this. The future was clear for them back then. The future was clear, one to eight, but God's word was closed and human wisdom preferred, but trust, excuse me, yet transformation from the Lord will come. That's the passage. The future was clear, but God's word was closed, and human wisdom preferred, yet transformation from God will come. And so for us, (laughs) keep God's word open and reject the wisdom which denies it. Let's work through it then. First then, verses 1 to 8, their future was clear. God says, here's what's going to happen, all right? This is what the next few years look like. We're something like 722 BC. Here's what the next two decades are going to look like, all right? Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel. What what was all that about? Well, it's clearly a reference to Jerusalem, the city where David settled. Ariel literally means altar, hearth. 
So the altar, the center of the Jerusalem sacrificial system where things are offered up to God. It's just a reply on words. Jerusalem, the, the center of religion, is just going to burn, is what he's saying. So deep sarcasm, uh, verse 1. Look, add, just keep going, all these festivals and religious ceremonies, add them, keep going. Yeah, yeah, more of them, more of them. Yeah, more of your useless religion, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen, verse 2. I'll besiege Ariel, Jerusalem, she'll mourn and lament, she'll become to me like an altar hearth, she's going to burn. I'll encamp you on all sides, I'll encircle you with towers, set up my siege works against you, brought low your speak from the ground. Yeah, it's going to be really grim. And this is precisely, we'll get there in um, a few weeks' time, but precisely what happens. The year 701 BC, Assyria does invade and conquers everything in its path in Judah, conquers all the major cities and besieges Jerusalem, the capital. But, verse 5, But at that point, your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. In an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, whirlwind, tempest, flames of a devouring fire. Well, we'll get there, but this is precisely what does turn out to happen in history. One night, Jerusalem is surrounded by hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and then they wake up the next day and they've all died. And Assyria sort of just retreats. He says, oh, we won't conquer Jerusalem then. And the people of Jerusalem do nothing, and God does everything. So it's just a prediction of precisely what's going to happen. It'll be like a dream, says Isaiah, verse 7, and it was. Verse 8 is when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakens hungry still. Last night, I was dreaming. I don't know why. Last night, I was dreaming that I was running away from someone, and they were trying to attack me. And then all of a sudden, I got a, just one of those things in the night, uh, my wife sort of just sort of nudged me with an elbow and I screamed out loud. I think the whole neighborhood must have heard it. She said, what are you, what are you doing? I said, I was being attacked. It was just my elbow. Okay, just that sort of thing. You just be like, you wake up and go, what? We were about to be destroyed by Assyria? They've all gone. How can that be? does it. You can trust him. So hard to believe though sometimes, isn't it? (laughs) Judah could see an army, but all they could do was hear a promise. Now that's quite hard. You can physically see hundreds of thousands of soldiers in front of you, and all you've got in defense is a promise. Now which do you trust? What you see with your eyes or what what you can hear? Probably depends who's speaking. So you're stuck in a traffic jam, and all you can see, as far as the M25 allows you, is car and car and car and car and red light and red light and dot matrix saying despair. Um, it doesn't even give you a speed, it just says despair. Um, and it's just all you can see is cars, and you oh, let's have a look on Waze, what are they saying? Or, or Google Maps, and Mrs. Google Maps says, your journey time will be 45 minutes. And you think, really? How can that be? Who do you trust? Well, not bad. Google, is it? Maybe they're right. Maybe just around the corner. But when you see and what you... Who are you going to trust in those... Or you look at your bank account. You get it up on your phone and it says zero or worse. And, um, And you despair because you know that, you know... 
the direct debits for the whatever are coming out in the next few days, and you despair. Apart from, apart from you have the promise of your employer that on whatever the 25th of the month, enormous sums of money are going to land, whatever your salary is, is going to land in your bank account. So you see a number which says zero, but you have this promise, which do you trust? Well, probably in that case, you trust your employer because they've done it a few times before. What you see, but you have a promise, which one are you going to trust? Often it depends who's speaking. You can look at the church in the United Kingdom and feel a bit discouraged. Lots of churches have given up on the word of God. And you think, oh, well, it's all rubbish, isn't it? It's all doom. Or, or you, could hear, you could hear Jesus saying, no, I'll build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against him. You think, oh, well, Jesus will build his church. Do you trust what you can just see in front of you or a promise? For them back then, they could see this army marching towards them. They knew what was happening. They knew that Assyria was conquering the whole region. But they had God's promise. What would they trust? For you and me, we could see all sorts of problems in front of us. Do we trust our own ingenuity, our own shrewdness, even though it's a bit naughty? Or do we trust the promise of God? Do you trust me? I'll look after you. The future was clear, but God's word was closed to them, verses 9 to 12. Now, there are two things, before I read, two things happening here. The religious leaders blind themselves and God blinds them. Both are taking place. Can you see it? Verse 9. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, not from wine. Stagger, not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep Sleep. He sealed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your heads, the seers. Verse 9, blind yourselves. Verse 10, the Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. Both. I guess it's a little bit, not perfect, a little bit like uh, saying to the alcoholic, okay, we've tried everything we can to help you, but you refuse to listen to us. Off you go. We will let you drink yourself silly until you hit rock bottom. Until you've decided you're going to get yourself out of it. You're just, you know, I just, we just, we hand you over because we can't do anything else. We will always be here. We will never let you go. We will never stop loving you. But for a season, we're just going to hand you over until you really hit the bottom. And then, and then we'll get you going again. It's that sort of sense to it. God says to Jerusalem, to, excuse me, to Judah, to the city of Jerusalem, okay, okay. All your religious leaders, they've refused to listen to my word. Okay, get on with it. I just going to let you live that way. And none of you are going to understand what Isaiah is even saying for a season. I'll never give up on you. Never let you go. You'll hit rock bottom before you do trust in me. But that's what's taking place. And so verse 11 is very miserable. For you, Jerusalem, Judah, this whole vision, what Isaiah is saying, is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this, please, they'll answer, I can't. It's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this scroll, please, they'll answer, I don't know how to read. Miserable. Absolutely wretched picture. 
But I guess you'd still say that's the case in plenty of places in this country, lots of churches with probably shrinking numbers of people, but no one, no one opening the Bible. I mean, the majority of churches you go to in this country, they don't even have Bibles. But no one will open it. No one will proclaim it. Plenty of religious activity, but not the Word of God. The future was clear, but God's word was closed. And human wisdom preferred, verses 13 to 16. So verse 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship from me or of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. Well, if you're not opening up God's word and listening to what God says, what do you do? Well, you just turn to the best wisdom available. And human rules that they were teaching back then, there's something timeless about that. Human rules will always be popular in a religious setting because they play you on side. They are self-justifying. So it would be really simplistic. You could have a choice. You could say, okay, the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hmm, that sounds a bit hard. Or or there's a sort of a wishy-washy Christianity over here that says, be true to yourself, love yourself, and God will love you. Oh, yeah, that's all right, isn't it? I'm not bad at loving myself. I'll have that one, please. And then I'm a good person. Or you could have the sort of certainty of Islam. Here are five pillars. You keep them. God is obliged to reciprocate and honor you. So you can put God in your debt if you keep the five pillars. Well, that's all right. I like the idea of someone being in my debt. That's okay. But they're both sort of self justifying systems. We're over here. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't. I've got to say, help. I've got to say, so, so Jesus did that for me. So he lived a perfect life for me and he died for everything I've done wrong. And I've got to say, help. I need you. I can't justify myself. I, I need. Well, that's humbling. I mean, it's liberating, wonderfully so. But there'll always be some who say, yeah, I prefer this because it's all on my terms. I'm still in charge. So human rules and that system, it'll always be popular, I think. Back then it was the same, and the Lord said, I will act, verse 14. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What happened in history, as we say, in 701 BC, all those wise people who said, we can't trust an invisible God, you've got to trust Egypt. They were made to look very stupid when Egypt said, do you know what? We don't want to fight with you, and stayed at home and gave no support. Meanwhile, the Lord performed wonders. And several hundred years later, the apostle Paul, writing 
in 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth. Thanks, Alana. Said, yeah, it's still the same now. People want to trust their own wisdom. But he said in these terms, Paul could say to the church in Corinth, very clever place, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written in Isaiah 29, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. So do you see how similar it is? Paul was saying there to the church of Corinth, look, the future is very clear. Eternity in heaven is open to those who listen to the word of God and trust that Jesus has lived perfectly for them and died for all they've done wrong. But plenty of religious people don't like it. Plenty of people say, I trust my own wisdom, thanks. They close the word of God. They turn to human wisdom. My favorite example, one or two may have heard it, my favorite example of this is, is genius, really. Uh, years ago, um, in the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky, in a sort of parody part of the book, uh, has Jesus returning to 16th century Spain. And um, Jesus returns and he's arrested and, and condemned to die. And you get the sort of religious clerics, the church, um, interviewing him. And they say, the problem with you, Jesus, is your message is just too difficult. Trust in you, it's just too difficult. We need a religion for this world. And so the grand inquisitor questions, is put all these questions to Jesus, and then in the concluding bit of it says, we, the church of the 16th century, we give people earthly bread, not your bread of heaven. We offer religious miracles now, not faith in the word of God. We exert power here and now. We're not interested in serving anyone. And that's a religion, Jesus, people like. He says, we've corrected your work, Jesus, to make it easier for people to believe. Now, that is, is dripping with sarcasm as Dostoevsky writes it. He's commenting upon or mocking the phenomenon of his day of a church which is constructed around merely human rules, Isaiah 29:13. But it's still happening. So Nick gave me an article from uh, The Spectator. It may not be your reading, it may not be his, uh, but he found it um, I'm not, but, uh, uh, from what was it, the 8th of this month. And is one guy uh, writing in these terms. So, the Church of England. The Church of England should regain some pride in its positive affinity with liberal culture. Pause. What the church needs to do is ignore the word of God because he goes on to condemn as very stupid all those people who trust the Bible, and just align itself with the values of the world, trust worldly wisdom. He goes on, admittedly, this will not in itself get agnostics back in the pews. Secular liberals obviously don't think they need any lessons on cultural freedom, but it's a crucial part of Anglican identity, and only a church that has confidence in its core identity can attract people. Now that, to my mind, even... Just from a neutral observation, I don't know if you can be neutral in such things, but it's a fairly self-defeating quote. I've got a strategy. It won't get anyone back into church, all right? <laughs> it won't get the agnostics in the pews, okay? So here's my great strategy. But ignore the Word of God and more deliberately copy every value that the world has got. That's the way forward. 
says Theo Hobson in The Spectator. Madness. And so Isaiah says, verse 15, well, people will do that. Verse 15, woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Did you think I don't know you've got an alliance with Egypt going on, says God. How silly. Who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? It is foolishness for us humans to say that to the Lord. I mean, it is a far from parallel experience. Can you imagine a four-year-old, a four-year-old at the kitchen table? So in one sense, something that a mum and dad have formed. A four-year-old says, okay, now we need to have some conversations about what we're trusting in. Um, uh, can we just, can, I, can you just explain to me, uh, mum and dad, how much do you earn? How much do you earn? Okay, so our income is this. What are our mortgage payments? Okay, okay. Yeah, that's foolishness. We're going to stop paying our mortgage and spend every single penny that comes in on sweets. That's what we're going to do. At which point, mum and dad say, I don't know about your wisdom. I don't know about the wisdom of a small child. And God says, I don't know about your wisdom. You, you've just been made like a pot, potter makes a pot says the Lord, and you're talking back to me. No. Madness. God has told them what's going to happen. Their future was clear. God's word was closed, and they preferred human wisdom. But that wasn't the end. Transformation from the Lord will come. That's the promise that Isaiah gave them in verses 17 to the end. Transformation, change will come. So verse 17, in a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field? And a fertile field seemed like a forest. Uh, Lebanon, just the Old Testament language, uh, impressive, strong. Trees of Lebanon, if you ever read that, it's magnificent, strength, formidable. You know, it's so, even in the Song of Songs, the great love poetry, your nose is like a tree of Lebanon. Woo! That's a good thing. Lebanon, trees, strength, power, beauty. That's, that's what you think. Well, a field is going to become like the trees of Lebanon and the trees of Lebanon like a field. Transformation. There's going to be a, a, a turning of things on its head, says the Lord. Because what's going to happen? Here's the crucial change, verse 18. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, the one that was closed back in verses 11 and 12. And out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see when they couldn't read a thing before. And once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord and the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. You'll hear, you'll trust, you'll believe, you'll know. And here is a lovely picture of a thriving community society. So verse 20, the ruthless will vanish, the mockers disappear. All who've had an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court with false testimony, deprive the innocent of justice. So corruption goes, inequality goes. Here's a just society in the future. Verse 22, uh, people no longer ashamed 
no longer fearful, faces pale with fear, that's all gone. Verse 23, there's flourishing, there's fertility. Verse 23, people trust the Lord. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob, will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Again, God concludes the chapter, this is the future. This is what happens. This brief tangent, but really, this whole section of Isaiah, he, he hears the same thing sort of over and over again in cycles. So it's a bit like um, if you do your washing in a washing machine, where else would you do it? Um, but you, you have filthy washing, and you put it in the machine, and it washes, and it rinses, and it spins dry. And then you get them out and they're clean. And then a week later, you get your dirty clothes and you put them in the machine and you wash them and you uh, rinse them and you spin them. And This section of Isaiah, the Lord keeps saying, you have filthy sin, mad rejection of me, and there will be judgment and there will be salvation and there's transformation the other side of that. So it's not a linear section, this. It's the same points being made over and over again, this cycle. And that's what they had to face in Isaiah's day. Judgment did come because of their faithlessness, because they refused to trust the Lord. Assyria did invade. But there was salvation. And the other side of that transformation. What do we take from Isaiah 29. Well, the big difference for us, for you and me, is we live this side of judgment. Jesus Christ has done that. We never have to go through this sort of cycle. He has been judged for our faithlessness. We live in a time of salvation if we're trusting in him. Transformation is gradual. This perfect world is still to come. So it's significantly different. And yet, at the same time, the future remains clear. So for us, for goodness sake, keep God's word open and reject the worldly wisdom which denies it. That would be the truth for you and me. The future is clear. Jesus will return to remake this world. And he'll, all those who've trusted in him, he'll take to be with him. Wonderfully transformed world. That's the future. It's very clear. So now, keep God's word open. Got to do that at a, a national level, national church level, personally. You've got to keep God's word open. The only way you and I trust the Lord and not worldly wisdom is if we keep the word of God open, we keep listening to him, keep hearing him. Those periods, we know this is true. You don't need me to tell you. But it's those periods where it's shut, just got no time to listen to God, the worldly wisdom becomes much more alluring. It's, the ob it's just shrewd, isn't it? It's just shrewd to lie rather than trust God. It's just shrewd, isn't it? We only believe that when we've let the word of God close. So personally, I guess for you and me, are we listening? The future remains clear. Jesus will return. It'll be a wonderful, glorious world when he does so. So keep God's word open. That is wisdom. Reject 
worldly ideas which deny it. They claim that they're shrewd. They're not. Be wise. Trust the Lord. You're going to do that. You've just got to keep his word open and listen. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, this is not a complicated truth. It wasn't complicated for Judah to know that they should trust you and not the wisdom of the world. And yet there are chapters and chapters and chapters of this book telling them over and over again to do just that. Because in practice, it's hard. Because we see problems, obstacles, threats in front of us. And the promises that you make that we can trust you seem faint in our ears. Father, will we trust your promises supremely? Above all else, trust in the promises of the Scriptures that we need to trust in Jesus, not our own rules. But then in day-to-day living, would you trust in him? Would you trust in your word, not our own shrewdness as we navigate life in this world? Would we know, Father, that that trusting you is wisdom. Amen.